Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Welcome, Ask Map episode 118. We hadn't even gone live and I was already cracking up because this thing <laughs> is hilarious. So welcome back to another edition of Ask Map. There are five advisors now. So uh, Ryan Gray, one of them, is not with us this week. Um, he's just under the weather. He got a COVID booster, so yay vaccines, but, you know, he's fighting it. Um, maybe that was TMI, but I think he'd share it. Um, <laughs> Uh, we will probably have all five of us sometimes, but I think lots of weeks you'll see that there's just three or four. So we'll try to keep it a healthy mix, keep it in rotation. You'll always get some of the advising team here. Um, feel free to go ahead and start typing in questions and comments while I do introductions and a few announcements. So uh, Courtney Lewis, our newest advisor, uh, not new to advising, just new to MAPT. You come as uh, recently director of admissions from Burel, I forget, College of Osteopathic, not school. Is it school? Anyway, Burel, <laughs> out in Las Cruces, New Mexico. How are you today? I'm doing great. This is my favorite time of the week. I've had some really good interview prep sessions for some pre-meds nice. that are going to nail it. They were so ready. They were so prepared. So, this week has been really good, and I'm excited to see everybody in person tomorrow, too. So, yeah, I guess yeah. not all the viewers, all of the MAP team. Sorry. Yeah, and actually only some of the MAP team, because some part-time folks and some folks based not in the U.S. aren't able to make it. But as much of the MAP team as we've ever had in one place. So that's really exciting. Marinia Granum. Uh you're, you're queen of the universe, I think, is your yeah. unofficial title, oh. right? So. Something uh, like that. <laughs> former assistant dean of pre-health and STEM advising at Hofstra University. You've been advising people in higher ed for 20 years now. You've yeah. been a pre-health specialist for almost 10. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, this is also my favorite day of the week, too. Get to talk to folks and, and um, kind of check in with how everyone's doing now, right? The big yeah. rush of applications are in and done secondaries are done now we're just prepping for interviews so we're busy on our side too helping students out so i look yep. forward to chatting with some more today and gearing up for next year yeah all yeah. right and last but definitely not least dr james scott wright hello hello, uh, hello. Retired executive director of TMDSAS, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern, not even on your banner, but you were also an associate dean at University of uh, North Texas, Tex right? Dallas. Texas at Dallas, yes. Yeah, Texas at Dallas. Yeah. I'm having br brain farts today. Um, <laughs> how are you? I am doing well. I am. Uh, I this. I agree with everyone else that this is one of my favorite times of the week. And uh, not only that, I get to see my colleagues, but I get, you know, we get to answer questions from these uh, bright and uh, inquisitive students. And uh, it's it's a very exciting time to to uh, of the week for all of us. Yep. <laughs> definitely is. And, you know, I said last but not least, but I don't think I introduced myself. If you don't know me, I'm Rachel Grubbs. I'm one of the co-founders here at MAPT, along with my colleague, Dr. Ryan Gray, who is out today, but he'll be back, never you fear. Uh, I've been helping people with MCAT and pre-med process for 20 years. So I think among the four of us, you've got something like, what, 20... 55, 75, 85, 85, 90 years of experience right here on this uh, live cast. So pick our brains, friend. I see questions and comments coming in. While we're rounding up a couple of those, I'll just make a couple real quick announcements. So one is hopefully you were able to attend MapCon on Friday. MapCon 22 was an amazing time. We uh, had a huge show out. It was a great day, and we are already gearing up for next year. So if you are interested in doing a pre-health conference with MAPT again, this time live and in person, 
save the date October 6th through October 8th, 2023. So not next month, but next year, uh, we'll be doing MapCon in Baltimore, Maryland for uh, all pre-health. So um, this year it was mostly pre-med and pre-PA. We're going to try to expand that and include a lot more pre-health paths. So come one, come all, go ahead and save the date. And you can go to mappedcon.com if you want to join our wait list. All right. Well, we'll take some questions. I can do the another announcement later, so I'm not just chatty chatty the whole time. Steven says, I have some lower stats for a couple schools I received interviews at. Post-interview, could these metrics hold me back? Or am I largely evaluated based on my interview? How did it work at UT Southwestern? So, Dr. Wright, you want to field this first? (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, uh, our our mantra here at MAPT is it depends. Uh, We we say that all the time, and and it certainly uh, is applicable here for this question. Uh, It depends on the school, and it depends on their process. I do know that some schools, once you get to the interview, the interview becomes a very, very big part of their process, and, and you're judged uh, mainly on the interview and, and, and not as much on the metrics. Uh, but that depends on the school. At UT Southwestern, uh, we would do things uh, where everything was considered. You know, we, we would, uh, the interview, the letters, the metrics, uh, it was all in the mix uh, and that is how we would make decisions based on on everything that we had available to us uh, at the time uh, that the admissions committee was making final decisions uh, regarding uh, offers and stuff like that. So, uh, so it really does uh, just depend on 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 the the process of the institution. I do think that in in many cases, uh, once you you know once you get an interview. Uh, then, then you have met <clears throat> some basic criteria that they're looking for where that, that may involve the metrics. It, it also may involve other things, applicability to the mission of the institution, for example, uh, that, would, uh, that would play into that. But you've, you've gotten over that hurdle. You've gotten an interview, so the interview is going to have an impact. So, uh, so you know, at this point, Stephen, what, what you need to keep in mind is in, in submitting your application and the secondary application, you have done your part. Now you have to let the medical schools do their part. Uh, that they, they go through a process to analyze and make decisions on who they want to uh, include in their class. And so uh, at this point, it, it, it's a waiting game, not as much for the osteopathic schools because they have different traffic rules and stuff, which allows them to make uh, offers earlier. Uh, but for AAMC schools, for, for uh, schools that are uh, pay attention to the uh, uh, AAMC traffic rules, then that, that means October is the, is the time where, when things start, start happening. So it depends a little bit. I, I'd be interested uh, in Courtney's uh, perspective on this as well. All right. Ms. Lewis, you want to chime in? Sure. I, I would agree with what you said, Dr. Wright. I think that if you have made it to the interview, then obviously they liked something in your application and they wanted to spend some time to get to know you a bit further. Usually the interview does hold some weight. And so, um, you know, you want to perform well there. That's their one-on-one time with you and their FaceTime with you. And so it, it generally does carry some hefty weight with it. Um, but we understand that people are nervous. It's a very short time frame to talk to them. So there, there is a little bit of leeway there, some wiggle room. So if you feel like you were particularly nervous or something like that, don't feel all is lost. Um, but they're going to look at everything once it gets up to the selection committee or admissions committee. They have your application. So all of the information you submitted, plus your secondary plus the interview content. So a lot of material to go over and it's all put together. So they get a pretty good sense of, of what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, Stephen, hopefully that helps. It's a tough waiting game. We know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. 
Sydney says, got my MCAT back. 519. Let's talk. Woo! Let's go. (laughs) Good job, Sydney. That's amazing. All right. However, I'm worried that my 3.45 GPA slash science GPA will hold me back. I did do an SMP with a 4.0 pre-med master's. Am I competitive enough for MD schools? Do schools have GPA cutoffs? Okay, there's a lot to tackle here. Brinia, do you want to uh, start breaking this into pieces for us? Yeah, sure. Sydney, yeah, definitely congratulations on that 519. That is no easy feat. Um, so, you know, a couple things. Your 3.45 GPA slash science GPA, I'm assuming it's in both areas. Um that number alone doesn't really tell us enough about what, you know, what your trends look like. We talk a lot about your trends, GPA trends, you know, was that a 3.45 because you started off sort of kind of a rough time and then built your way up and, and uh, brought your GPA up? Or did you start off kind of, you know, really strong and then dipped? Um, so, so that's important to look at. That's something that medical schools also look at. That number alone doesn't tell your whole story. Um, you also did a special master's program, which is great. That definitely enhances your application. But on its own, can we say that someone with a 519 and a 3.4 um, GPA is competitive enough for MD schools? Not necessarily. We we can't say that because there's so much more that goes into your application. So, um, you know, it, it, are there schools that have GPA cutoffs potentially? Um, but it's it, what you need to focus on is how well you performed on your MCAT you know, what other things have you done that's going to um, enhance your application, your activities and things like that? Um, and then look at your GPA, look at, air, you know, your trends, look and see how, um, what that 3.45 actually tells about your academic performance and about your strengths in those courses. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Rachel was uh Taking pictures there. <laughs> I was taking pictures to post on Insta. Yeah. <laughs> so didn't think to quiet I, my phone myself. I but whatever. It. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. But um, but yeah, I would love I would love um, Courtney your insight or, or uh, Scott your insight seeing seeing this question having been on the admission side side of things. Yeah, Courtney, you wanna? Sure. So. Very similar. We're going to look at trends. It's, you know, look at how long it's been between your undergraduate and when you did your master's. We want to see how you performed in your prerequisite um, courses and see what kind of grades you got there. Um, You know, obviously having your master's be your strongest GPA is always a good thing. That's the most recent coursework. It's most indicative of who you are as a student at present, as opposed to in the past, and maybe that you've learned and grown since then. And doing a master's in your situation where it was structured, it had larger course loads instead of kind of piecemealing things together is probably a good thing. Um, But yeah, we would need a bit more information and, and some of the breakdowns to be able to see um, kind of what you're up against with those numbers. But I would say stats alone, um, it doesn't seem uncompetitive, but right. there, there may be a couple of things that um, would be a bit red flaggy mm-hmm. or, or positives. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, in GMAT, we talk about insufficient data questions. And yeah. I know that, well, I think there's an MBA question coming soon. So at least one of you might know about the GMAT. But uh, it, this just isn't a question we can answer, Sydney, because we don't have your whole profile, right? We don't know about your clinical experience. We don't know about your shadowing. We don't know what your essays are going to look like. We don't know how well you can articulate your why medicine. Um, I wouldn't let your stats hold you back, but I hope you understand there's lots more. That's kind of been the meta point I think we're all making. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. What's next? There we go. Joshua Phillips says, can I get a degree in business such as accounting and still go into medical school? Short and sweet. Heck yes, you can. (laughs) Uh, There's a follow up from him. I'll share. It says, all I see is science majors that are pre-med and I'm in third year. Yeah, it's very common. It's very common for pre-meds to be science majors. And it's very common for them in particular to be biology majors That is not required. Um, I'm going to make a generalization here. And that generalization is 
most pre-meds really like biology. <laughs> you know, it's not always true, but it's often true. Also, when you look at not just your prereqs, but some of the recommended courses that med schools sometimes say, hey, you might have a better experience in med school if you've taken this in undergrad, a lot of those are upper level biology. So I think some people pick biology because they love it. I think some people pick biology by default because they think, well, I'm so close already. But um, you can major in anything. Um, there's no rule that says it has to be science. In fact, you know, again, admissions committees are not a monolith. It depends. But sometimes people are really excited to see a breadth of interest outside of science. Um, and um, fun fact, not that it applies to you specifically since you mentioned you were in business or accounting, but humanities majors tend to do better on the MCAT. Um, and, you know, that's not a reason to go be a humanities major, but it does remind us that, uh, the MCAT is a critical reading exam as well as a science exam. So anything you're doing to broaden your brain outside of just memorizing information, anywhere where you're having to do critical problem solving, critical thinking, critical reading, you should pick a major you like. But if you also pick up those skills along the way, that's excellent. It's going to really serve you well. Carmen, can I shadow a doctor during summer break? Sure. Definitely. <laughs> so that's the easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brinia, give the complex answer. Oh, so, um, yes, absolutely, Carmen. Yes, absolutely. Uh, shadow a physician during your summer break, during your winter break, during whatever opportunities you can get. Um, because the idea is not to, not to have, like, a set amount of time at each activity and, you know, you want to show consistency across the board in terms of the time spent and the length of time that you've participated in, in some of these activities and shadowing to, to really show that you have made the effort to find out more about the profession and find out more about what the day-to-day -day life of a doctor is like. So try not to limit, a, a lot of pre-meds do this. They think, okay, I'm going to focus on my schoolwork in, you know, September through May. And then in the summer breaks, I'm going to do all my pre-med activities. Try not to uh, schedule your activities that way, because then you're, you're just doing them in chunks while it's convenient sometimes for your own schedule. It's not really showing um, sort of a commitment to this, right? You're, you're just, you're just doing it during these times because that's when you can do them. So it doesn't have to be hundreds of hours throughout the year. Um, a few hours, every month consistently across the board, not just during your summer breaks is, is fine. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, you're, you're muted. Uh... Rachel. Thanks. It was because I was still multitasking over on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted everyone to see Verenia answering questions. Um, <laughs> All right. John says, I am a CNA, but I only work in patients' homes, not in a hospital. Is CNA experience in a hospital with many patients preferred over CNA experience in homes with a few patients? Dr. Ray, you want to tackle this? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really hung up on the word preferred. Um, I, I don't like that word uh, in the context hmm. of this question. Uh, I think that uh, you know what, what the what the medical schools are looking for is is um, is experience is experience, uh, and as a CNA, whether you're in the hospital or in patients' homes, you're dealing with patients uh, with regard direct interaction with them with regard to their uh, healthcare, and so it's definitely a clinical experience. Now, having said that, I would say that uh, it could be valuable for you to get some experience in a, in a, uh, in a hospital or a, or a clinic of some sort, uh, just so that you can see what that's like, see the differences between what you do in the home of a patient versus what happens uh, in, a, in a more traditional healthcare setting like a hospital or a nursing home, for example. Uh, so, but preferred, I do not think that, that I would use that word. I, I think that's a, a kind of a loaded word, and I, I, don't, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that that would be accurate. 
great. Thanks for that thorough response. David Green, what do you think any... Wait, I'm trying to understand the syntax Mm. here. I think we missed a verb. What do you think any trickling applications... Maybe about. What do you think about trickling applications? Thank you, David. (laughs) So that you don't get overwhelmed with secondaries all at the same time. I think there are no rules, and you should do whatever helps you apply. Um, So earlier in the year, this was a big conversation. It's still happening some now, but especially in June, July, August, we got a lot of, well, I heard I'm supposed to turn around my – my secondary is within two weeks, so should I stagger them so I'm turning them all around within two weeks? But that's one data point. And we do say that a lot, especially in the winter and spring when we're trying to help people who have a very aggressive timeline, right? So if we're working with someone starting in January of their application year, then we're telling them, hey, let's aim to have you apply by the first week of June and have your secondaries turn around as soon as you get them in late June, early July. But at this point, it's all relative, You could talk about, well, I want to make sure I turn them around in two weeks, so I want to get my secondary slope more slowly. Or you could just think, yeah, but in general, it's essentially a race to the musical chairs of the interview, right? Interviews are being given now. There are going to be thousands and thousands of applicants and maybe only hundreds of interview seats for each school. So go at a pace that you can sustain, but get it done as soon as you can so you can start to be eligible for the interviews that are being offered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nods all around. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Carmen, can I include an activity done about ten years ago? Courtney Lewis. Uh sure. So there are people that have been combat medics and things like that and then gone to school, and we definitely want them to be able to include that information. I would say make sure that it's college years on if you're counting experience that way and that would be a good rule of thumb but if you've done it give yourself credit for it and we want to know those hours it helps us build a better picture of how well-rounded you are how long you've been in this process how much kind of uh, kind of breadth and depth of your experience and so I would definitely say yes include it if it's within that time period yep great Liv says, I had an interview, congratulations, and I sent a thank you email the day after my interview to the admissions team. I was thinking of sending a thank you email direct to the doctor who interviewed me as well. Is it too much? Folks who have recently been on admissions committees, what say ye? Uh, I, I don't think it's too much. I mean, I, I think especially if you can say something valuable about the about what you talked about with the interviewer. So if you talked about the interviewer's research or if you talked about the class that they teach or, you know, what they do clinically that you can reference in the email and say, I really enjoyed our conversation about X, Y, Z. Uh, thank you for spending the time interviewing me. Then I, I think that's just fine. Uh, I don't necessarily think that you need to have the expectation you're going to hear back. You might, uh, but uh, don't also have the expectation this is going to mean, oh, they're going to like me and they're going to think I'm great because I sent them an email. Uh, so just, uh, you know, I think if, if there's something that you can reference with regard to what you talked about, then that, that adds a little bit to it, uh, makes it a little bit more meaningful. Uh, email, I think, but uh, otherwise, I, I don't think that's necessarily overdoing it. I would, I would chime in here. I would see it's kind of like letters of interest, um, where some schools may kind of funnel communication with applicants. And so if you've already emailed the admissions team, feel free to reach back out to them and see if it would be okay if you emailed the the clinician that interviewed you directly or what the process for that would be. They will be able to give you that information, tell you exactly how they want it. Um, and, and then you can have an expectation of um, what to do and how to move forward. Mm-hmm. Good idea. Yeah. Great point. Yep. Yeah, uh, someone in Application Academy. Oh, sorry. Yeah, hold off on that banner just for a moment. Someone in our group advising program that's heading into its last few weeks for this cycle, and then we'll be opening up for next cycle soon. 
um, at applicationacademy.com. But so the other day I was doing interview prep with a group and somebody said, okay, so I had my first interview and she read off a script and we didn't have anything to connect about because she told me at the beginning, I'm just going to read the script of questions. So there was like no engagement. I mean, it could have been a video, you know? So, I mean, she got through it. She said it went okay, considering that it was essentially one way. She was like, now I don't know how to write a thank you note. I didn't connect with him about anything. I was like, well, you could say you were grateful for the opportunity and you can thank them for their time. (laughs) Well, and if you are going to write one, just remember it's another data point that they're going to have. So, be formal. Make sure that you put the proper openings, the proper punctuation. You have somebody potentially proofread it because what you don't want to do is have a good interview and then send an overly casual email mm-hmm. and just give them something that kind of makes them iffy on you. Um, I know I've gotten a few emails from pre-med students when I was a director that I thought were very casual um, and and obviously sent quickly. So if you're going to do it, spend some time, you know, do it, make right. it professional, yeah. do it right. Yeah. Do it right. Yeah. I used to get, I used to get some emails that, that started off. Hi guys. Mm. Exclamation point. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Hey Courtney, thanks yeah. for doing that. Bye. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 yeah, no, no. no, no. No. Yeah, it's really tricky, too, because so many of us, when we interview, are slightly informal because it helps the candidate relax. And also, there are different rules in academia, I think, than in corporate America. So sometimes people have work experience think, well, I always call my boss by their first name. And Dr. Ryan Grace says, just call me Ryan. So is she Courtney or is she Miss Lewis? Rachel always calls it Courtney. I'm like, yeah, but you know. If I were half my age and applying to her school, I'd probably figure out what her title was. Err on the side of being overly formal. Right. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. No one's going to fault you for calling Scott Dr. Wright. Yep. Right. You're yep. acknowledging their title. It's okay. That's right. That's right. All right. Poor Chad Jacob got teased like three minutes ago. Let's bring his question back. We didn't forget you, Chad. <laughs> How do medical schools view having different clear clinical experiences in a short amount of time, such as working for a scribe for eight months, then working in a lab for six months, then then as an EMT for four months? Yeah, that's fine. Just, yeah, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about wanting to have consistent experiences. But these these have been, you know, short in, in short spurts, so to speak, but they are different experiences. And eight months, it's actually not a very short amount of time. Neither is four months. Like you've gained a lot of experience in that time frame. Um, and there may be reasons why, right? There may be reasons why you had to move on from these positions. But if it were to come up during an interview, you could explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, agreed. Well said. Mm-hmm. It's micro versus macro. We appreciate exactly. that you're thinking at that level, but... You've got consistent clinical. You just mm-hmm. got it in a couple different places. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Stephen, a different Stephen from before. This one's a PH. I've been working in healthcare for the past 10 years as a hospital, ooh, corpsman? Mm-hmm. Is that how you said that? Mm-hmm. And we'll be going back to school soon. Will schools want to see more shadow hours experience continue through school? Mm. Yep. Good question. Definitely. Big nods from our directors. The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have to be obviously as many hours, but you do want to have consistency to show that you have current experience. You're um, continuing to stay abreast of, of what's going on and, and gaining that experience. So, yes. Yeah. And I, I, I'm assuming that since uh, Stephen used the word corpsman, that this was a military experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it will be valuable for you, and it will also be valuable for the medical schools to see that you've had experiences outside the military. Um, military healthcare experiences is a different kind of thing. And, uh, and, and so I think having some experiences uh, outside of that context uh, could be valuable for you, certainly, but uh, also will allow the medical schools to see that you, n- not only that you've made the effort, but that, that you understand what healthcare looks like w- w- within different contexts. Yes, excellent point. 
Matt Mack. Matt says, when you say include activities from your college years and on, would being an Eagle Scout be a possible exception to that? So there's a couple ways to look at this, Matt, and this is a question I think we get at least once a year every year. So you are not alone. Um, Eagle Scout can be a really formative experience, right? It's a big deal. It's um, the accumulation of years and years in work, lots of honor, lots of endurance. You know, it's there's so much that goes with it. So I, I get like the pride you feel and you kind of think like, is there is there a way I can show this off? Something to keep in mind is that when we're talking about include activities from your college years and on, that's not a mapped recommendation. That's us telling you what most of the application services say. So when you get to AMCAS and it's time to fill out your applications, there is an expectation that you're doing things from when you graduated high school onward. And I use that language deliberately because sometimes people do a gap year between high school and college and that's fair game. But anything after high school graduation onward is listed in your activities section generally. Um, that's definitely true for AMCAS. Acomas in Texas, you want to chime in? Same, same for, te- for the Texas service, yes. Okay. Yep, same, same for DO. And I would say, you know, there is a section, because I have seen people mention being an Eagle Scout in their awards or recognition or, or things like that. So you could potentially add it there if mm-hmm. you want to make sure that it's included, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily in your experience section. Right. And then the other thing that sometimes comes up is that sometimes people want to include it in their personal statement. And my answer to that is it depends because your personal statement should be why medicine. That's the theme of the personal statement. The question is why medicine? And it's not what's your life story, what's your resume, right? So if Eagle Scout somehow ties directly to your desire to be a physician, you know, maybe that's the fir- first place you did CPR and save someone's life or something, you know, like maybe it was a pivotal moment in your life. Um, but it, it is possible that it won't come up in the primary application at all. Often in the secondaries, there's a question that is there something about us that you want to share that you haven't had a chance to yet? And I think Eagle Scout goes great there. But it's it's not it's not that it's impossible. It's pretty rare that it shows up in the primary. Hmm. Christian, is my experience as a hospital pharmacy technician a valid clinical experience? If not, what are the criteria for a valid clinical experience? Ding, ding, ding. Is it clinical? Uh, (laughs) This is a game show we're going to make someday. It's going to be like Family Feud. Survey says. um, (laughs) All right. Uh, I know, Brittany, I always pick on you when this comes up, but you just explained it so well. Tell, Tell our audience about clinical. Absolutely. So, Christian, any activity in which you are directly involved in the care of another human being in some way, um, taking care of their needs, um, supporting them through a health situation, whatever that looks like, is what we consider clinical patient care experience. It's not about the setting. It's not about where you're doing it. It's about what you're doing with that person um, in, in some way that's involved with their health. A hospital pharmacy technician primarily is in a pharmacy setting. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if that means that you're delivering medication for them or if you're just staying in the pharmacy itself. So it's hard to tell you whether it's clinical per se, but in, in, in my experience and what I've seen, it, it doesn't always count as clinical. So you're, you're really just limited to working in the pharmacy and, and um, you know, maybe filling medication or, you know, distributing medication. So we can't really say that this is clinical. Is it valid experience? Of course, yes. It's still a valid experience around healthcare and around patients, but, but not necessarily taking care of a patient. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Yep. Right. Yeah, and, and for everyone, for every is it clinical question, our answer is always going to be, it depends, tell us what you do at your job. Exactly. Um, because some farm techs count pills by five, run the register, handle insurance questions, put out fires. They do really important work. I mean, I am on like 
first name friendly basis with my farm techs, right? I'm, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm there a lot. I can't get all the pills to come in in the same week. Um, so it's important work. But if I need counseling, if I need to talk about my meds, they go get the pharmacist. Mm-hmm. So by that definition, I would say they're amazing retail workers and they are helping with me with my healthcare admin. They're not giving me clinical experience because I get that with a pharmacist. Now, the hospital pharmacy, it might be a little different. So you need to think about what you do on a daily basis and then make this critical thinking decision. Is it clinical or not? Am I working directly with patients in a way that is directly related to their health care? Exactly. Tamia, my cumulative GPA right now is a 3.4. I'm in my junior year. I'm debating if I should try to go to med school or just go straight into a master's program to help improve, improve my application. Or maybe a third choice. <laughs> uh, Scott, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, post-bac work versus master's programs when we're trying to improve our GPA? Yeah, the first thing I would say uh, is that a, a 3.4 GPA is not a bad GPA. I just want to sort of cover that uh, from the from the beginning. Uh, now, we, we we talked earlier in this in this broadcast about trends, and this is this is an important topic that really needs to that, that uh, you need really to be aware of. Uh, you know, if you started out. You know, kind of rocky in your freshman year and things have gotten a lot better and you've brought it up to a 3.4 already, then, you know, that's really a good sign. And, and, and so I, I would encourage you to, to, to really evaluate that uh, and, and look deeply at the, the trends that you're talking about. Now, if you do decide that, uh, that a, you know, further uh, schooling is going to be important for your application uh, to improve that uh, that GPA uh, and how, how that looks to the medical schools, then there really are two different avenues for that. There, there's probably more than two, but we'll, we'll talk about two. And, and that is undergraduate post work uh, at the university where you're studying now or potentially a different university uh, where you're taking upper level largely biological science, although it could branch out into neuroscience or some other uh, some other fields that are closely related to biology um, in order to uh, to add to that GPA and to show that in that upper level coursework you can you can really uh, do well uh, there are in addition um, post back programs that are master's programs which we typically call a special master's program an SMP uh, uh, where they are focused on helping students uh, in this case, for example, to do GPA repair work uh, to help them uh, show to the medical schools that they have the capacity uh, to do uh, well in, in a rigorous environment. Uh, so those are two different avenues. Different medical schools are going to have different takes on which one they might prefer to, to see. I, I think my experience and my, my feeling is that you never go wrong with undergraduate work uh, Medical schools know how to interpret undergraduate work. They know how uh, they know what it means to make an A in a upper level undergraduate uh, biology course. They they know what it means if you make a B or a C in that. Um, the the special masters programs are, are not a bad thing, but I do think that they are that uh, they're created for a, a specific purpose. And uh, some medical schools are going to really you know, latch onto that and, and really uh, 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 like to see that. Uh, typically, uh, in a special master's program, you're going to do it for a year and then apply. Uh, we do have students who will apply during their master's program, but that's a little bit difficult because uh, uh, they, the, the, the med school doesn't really have anything to go on other than that you got into the special master's program, and uh, but they don't have any results yet. So uh, our recommendation if you're doing that is to do the program and then apply. Yep. yep. And so while we're on this topic, I wanted to just bring up um, MapDAP. So you can calculate your GPA for free in MapDAP. Um, uh, again, to be clear, MapDAP is free. There is a paid level called Mapped Pro, but if we're talking about MapDAP, that means all you have to do is give us your name and your email, and you've got a free account, and you can start using tons of cool stuff. So um, 
typically I use the demo account, but I'm, I'm actually using a former student here. Let me just make sure it's showing up on screen. Yeah. So I try to hide at least most of their name. Um, but so if you look at this student here, the green line is really the key thing we're looking at because the blue is the cumulative line. And you can see that the blue doesn't move much. She started strong freshman year, has this big dip with the green line that drags the blue down. And all the blue, although the blue went back up and definitely ends strong, right? I mean, we're looking at a cumulative of 3.65 here. So nothing at all to sneeze about. Totally solid grades. But, you know, spring 2017, that Hume was not looking good. Um, and I know, because I know the student, that she had an advisor who said, you should think about switching careers. And she didn't want to. She didn't want to give up. So all of this additional green line, it's not master's work. She, um, she transferred to a different school that she thought would be more supportive for her. She did um, DIY postback. And here is showing that Whatever this dip is, whatever happened in her life was a moment in time and that she absolutely has the rigor. And that's kind of what you're looking to show is it's it's less about what's that cumulative number and more about what's the trend. And MapDap will actually calculate this for you just the same way the med schools will. So, um, you know, they can slice and dice a million ways. We've got about um, six tables so far. They can have, you know, infinity tables, but we'll show you some of the ways that schools are looking at this data. So I would definitely recommend that anyone who's wondering about GPA trends, go ahead and start your MapDap account, start seeing the way schools are going to calculate it. You can get tripped up by the fact that, um, you know, Texas doesn't do pluses and minuses. Uh, none of the application services do A pluses. So if you're getting 4.3 at school, it's still a 4.0 in AMCAS. Um, and Acoma San Texas, um, you know, those little details start to change the numbers. So it's always best to know what the official number is going to look like. Oh, I don't know why Verenia is on Spotlight. Hey there. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so, yeah, that's a little bit about MapDap. Just a reminder that it is free. You can go to map.com and create an account for free. Um, while we're talking about cool stuff coming up, I'll do one more quick plug. If you haven't heard, we are partners with uh, Blueprint Prep. They're the official MCAT provider. Um, now, they're our official MCAT provider because you guys have told us that they're the provider you trust the most consistently. So that's why it's, uh, it, it's led by you. And they are doing a $20,000 scholarship for um, anyone taking the MCAT in 2023. And if you haven't heard, MCAT test dates just came out today. Registration is going to be October 25th, 26th. So you can go to MCATscholarship.com or this super long gobbledygook that's in the, um, on the slide you're seeing now. Um, and, or just go to MCATscholarship.com. That's the easier one. And uh, enter to win a $20,000 scholarship towards your med school tuition. Pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we still have about 10, 15 minutes left. What else? Karen says, any tips on keeping sanity while waiting to hear back from med schools? Yes, indeed. We have some. Uh, so uh, this is often where I say mm -hmm. it's time to pick up yoga. <laughs> I'm biased. I'm a yoga teacher. Um, I think some people think yoga is crazy contortions and circus freaks and balancing acts and a lot of the stuff you see in marketing. And, you know, that is still yoga. People who are doing that are doing yoga because yoga is actually more about what's in your head than in your body. But yoga can bring um, reduced anxiety, um, better sleep. It, it helps with a whole host of sort of minor psychological slash physiological ailments um, just by doing a little gentle stretching and breathing. Um, so again, I'm biased. I'm a yoga teacher, but there's so much free, great yoga out there on YouTube. There's low cost stuff. Um, if you haven't tried picking up yoga or meditation, I highly recommend it. But that is one of many options. Let's everybody take a round and give their top tip. I gave mine. I am a big fan of taking the time to just accept that this is part of the process, sit with that anxiety for a little bit, just know that it's, there's nothing really you can do about it and then let it go. Focus on your current 
activities or your job. Hopefully you're doing things around patients that keeps you motivated, keeps you grounded and reminds you of why you're putting yourself through this um, and pick up some, some pleasure reading. Just, you know, disconnect from your phones if you can, because that temptation to constantly check your emails is, is debilitating sometimes. Um, allow yourself twice a day. Okay. This is my time to check my email and that's it. And you have to try to really, stick to that have an accountability buddy who's reminding you okay put your phone down um if you can um but 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 for me reading is very relaxing um so i I encourage students to or folks in this process right now pick up a book pick up something to get your mind off of it nice yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit different here Uh um in my suggestion I I completely agree with everything that you guys said too. Um, What I've had people do in the past and what I would suggest is obviously continue to to do the things that you're doing and, and go as though nothing has changed you know, maybe you have to apply another cycle and, and you just continue on those things. Um, it's also a really good opportunity to kind of get the information you would need, engage with the school, engage with their students that you would need if you do receive an offer or if you get multiple offers and you know that certain things would weigh into your decision and you have generally a fairly short amount of time to make a deposit payment and secure a seat. So there's no reason you have to wait to start gathering that information, digging a little bit deeper. If you liked your interview day and you feel really strongly, sometimes schools surprise you. You're like, wow, I didn't think this was my top choice, but after interview day and engaging with the students, I really want to go here. Um, And so I think that in that downtime, you can be looking up the things that are going to be important to you, like housing, you know, seeing if they have Facebook pages with students that you can talk to or the ambassadors or, you know, places to look up roommates and engage, or if they're having, you know, a virtual open house, attending that, getting just kind of gathering information. If you do end up having to apply again, the next cycle, that information doesn't hurt you. If you end up on the wait list, that information doesn't hurt you. Um, and, and the schools like to engage with you. So I think that there are things, you know, if you're going to have to pick up and move, figuring out that information or connecting with people and resources that, you know, will kind of help you get into it. So I think you can kind of throw yourself either way, having a balance. But what med students will tell you is enjoy your freedom travel, enjoy your break. Don't do anything. Don't try to cram a bunch of formulas in your mind because once school starts, it's going to be intense. So definitely enjoy the journey, enjoy this part. And, um, you know, but if you want to fill time with something, you can definitely fill it with those types of things to kind of get ahead of the game. If you do get an offer or a waitlist position. Yeah, I would I would say uh, two things to to this question, Karen. The first I would say is stay off of Reddit and Student Doctor Network. Uh, these uh, are anxiety producing um, websites, and uh, it just is not going to be good. So try to avoid those as much as possible. Uh, at this point, you don't need to I- increase your anxiety any more than it already is. Uh, The second thing I would say is try to interact as much as you can with people who are not med school applicants, who don't care about the MCAT. They don't even know what that means. Uh, You know, get, get into the real, quote, real world and interact with people who are just living in, in a in a different reality than you've been living in, because my, my concern here is that, especially and this this is this is a very frequent when you're still in school and and all your friends are pre meds and you're constantly talking about it and constantly going over it and have you heard have you heard mm-hmm. what you know and, and it's all this back and forth and it just produces uh, insanity 
And so, uh, so try as much as possible to interact with people who, who are not in this process uh, to, to balance your life out and to kind of center yourself a little bit. All right. Well, Karen, as with almost any question you ask for admissions advisors, you're going to get four answers. Uh, <laughs> admissions are not a monolith and neither are we. Uh, but hopefully some of those tips resonated with you. If they didn't all, that's fine. You have some choice. Uh, what's next? Carmen says, can I take the MCAT in September next year if I want to apply in 2024? Yes. So just to be clear, Carmen's talking about applying in 2024, which means starting med school in 2025. And now I've been in MCAT prep a long time. So I give like best case scenario advice. And my best case scenario advice is that if you're applying in 2024, that you take the MCAT no later than January or March 2024, which are the first two rounds of dates. So yeah, for some people, if you've got all your prereqs under your belt already, you might end up deciding to do the MCAT next summer. If summer is a lighter time of year for you, it's not for everyone, but sometimes it is. Um, and that's still close enough to when you apply that it shouldn't be a big deal in terms of the score expiring before you apply. Um, so yeah, feel free to prep next summer if you're if you've got your prereqs under your belt. Uh, I think Mame, Mame, I would love to learn how to say your name correctly. So feel free to type in and give me tips. Uh, Mame asks, I have clinical hours, but after I graduated, I had issues that required that I increase my income. So I took a job as an academic advisor in a college. Hey, we know about that job. That's a great job. <laughs> Does this look bad since it's not clinical? Well, I wouldn't say bad. And we kind of answered this before because we had... Um, someone who was transitioning out of the military asking about should they keep clinical up? And our answer was yes. But yet you got to pay the bills, right? You got to put a roof over your head. Maybe you have people who are counting on you. Um, clinical doesn't have to be full time. Maybe you can find um, a one weekend a month activity, or maybe there's somewhere that needs you for subs, right? I, I know several pre-meds right now who are doing PRN, so they just don't have a regular shift, but they do get called in for people's vacations and sometimes they get last minute calls for sick days, but it's just enough to keep them in the mix. Um, also, if you can find volunteer clinical, usually that's more flexible. It's just, um, although some people are saying the COVID pandemic is over, hospitals may or may not agree. So some places that take volunteers are still limiting that for safety reasons. Um, but so you could probably find your regular volunteer work or you can try to find a part-time clinical gig just to keep your finger in it. But it doesn't look bad that you're doing something else. Yeah. Oh, and bonus. I'm oh. glad I did. Thank you for the feedback. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's great. <laughs> Leo says, hi, guys. I'm currently volunteering at a hospital, and I'm in charge of the call lights. I'm talking directly to patients. Does this count as clinical experience? Sure. I would say so. You're talking directly to patients yeah. and handling call lights and um, yeah. sending that information on. So yeah. Yeah. responding to their needs. Yeah. 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 It sounds like it to me. Um, if you're being in charge of call lights means I tell a nurse to go visit the patient. Right. Maybe not. <laughs> it's, it, it, it probably is Leo, but this is why I always go back to, I want to know what your day-to-day -day life looks like. If you talk with patients 20 minutes a day and spend the other seven hours and 40 minutes stocking shelves, it doesn't sound very clinical to me. Now, almost all entry-level clinical jobs have some of that shelf stocking stuff, and that doesn't invalidate it. I'm just saying, like, how much patient care are you getting? Only you know. So uh, ask yourself the question. I'm talking directly to patients. Am I giving patients health care? Am I interacting with them in a way directly related to their health? If you're answering their call light needs, if you're not just in charge of the lights, but you're doing the response, that's probably covering that base. My bad. Sorry. I got, I got involved, Marissa. You fix it. <laughs> I did it. I did a click. <laughs> We're good there we go. <laughs> C 
see no touchy. Uh, Teresa <laughs> wants to know, do med schools consider which undergraduate school you attended? Eh. I see I, Courtney wanting to respond. Chime in, friend. <laughs> I'm antsy at this one. I saw it come in. Um, so with most things, it depends on where you're looking and where you're applying to. I would say if you are in Texas, um, you applying or being from a Texas school, having lived there is probably important. Um, if, you know, there are, I would say there are circumstances where undergrad institutions are, are known about and kind of preferred um, if they're, you know, predominantly in-state schools that are looking for in-state students or um, specific rankings. I know one of my previous deans uh, wanted me to have, I believe it's a Barrett's um, reference, which was about this thick printed and they, they send it out and it ranks all of the schools in competitiveness. And so he would want to have a point of reference for that how heavily it's weighted and used. It's just a point of reference. Um, so I would say overall, if you're attending a four-year institution, it's going to be okay. And, and the preference isn't going to be significant unless there are other kind of extenuating circumstances or kind of a niche or a particular student that they're looking for with other qualifications. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Wright, I heard you nodding. Do you want to well, you, I heard you going, mm-hmm. Do you yeah. have things you want to chime in? <laughs> no, I, I, I would agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, my, my experience has been most medical schools uh, don't uh, have, a, you know, a, a particular preference for, you know, any, any particular undergraduate institution. Uh, they may have a track record with certain schools where they know what, what the, you know, they maybe get a lot of students from a particular school and that's in their state or that they're connected to in some way. Uh, but I think that the genesis of this question uh, often is for uh, parents or for high school seniors who are considering where they want to go to school, uh, where they want to go to college. Should I choose a, uh, you know, a, a, a X school over Y school because X school is higher on some ranking list or uh, Y school is, uh, you know, seen as, as something or whatever, you know, this is often where, where these kinds of questions come from. Mm-hmm. My experience suggests that um, medical schools will, will, you know, look at you and, and, and evaluate you based on your experiences, based on what you've done in the classroom, what your uh, story is and uh, where you went to, went to school uh, is going to be less relevant uh, to them, uh, largely. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I think you, the, the key here is go to the, go to the uh, undergraduate institution that you feel like you fit at best. Uh, because ultimately, you're going to do uh, better mm-hmm. in the curriculum there if you feel like you fit and belong there. And that's a, that's a very important, you know, if you, if you, you know, want to go to an Ivy league school because it's, Oh, it's Ivy league. And, you know, they're going to be, you know, I'll I'll be seen as really smart and all of that stuff in my application and et cetera, but you don't fit within that culture, then that's going to be problematic. And you may not do as well because you're like a fish out of water. Whereas maybe going to your, uh, a state school in your, in your home state, you, you really connected with them and you, you really want to go there. But uh, then, then I would say consider those things when you're, when you're evaluating that kind of question. Yeah, definitely. Completely agree. Fit matters so much. And mm-hmm. uh, Courtney, I really appreciate you chiming in about the Barron's ranking, which I think you had mentioned once before a few weeks back. Um, it's good to know that stuff is happening in some cases with some committees at some schools. It stresses me out because I know how flawed the Barron's book is, the Princeton Review book is. I mean, I used to work for Princeton Review. Um, that's a student-led survey. So it's just how the students perceive the school, um, which is informative, but it's just one lens. I know how flawed the U.S. News and Ranking is. Um, a lot of those data points are about marketing and about yield. So schools are considered good for undergrad because they turn away tons of people, right? So 
that's a weird standard that Americans have. In Europe, a school is considered good if they recruit just about the right cohort, right? If they understand what fit is and if you're not scholastically a fit or you're not culturally a fit, they ID that and you don't apply, right? So we just have this thing that like, oh, it must be a good school that had to turn, to, turn away a lot of people. And some of that is just about brand name. Right. If I say Harvard, most of you have heard of it. If I even say Ohio State, even if you don't know whether or not it's a good school, you've probably heard of it because of football. But, you know, how many of you have heard of Denison, Kenyon and Oberlin, all great liberal arts schools within two hours of Ohio State? You know, like there's there's and it's just I'm doing Ohio because that's where I live. (laughs) It's an easy example. But there's so much more than rank. So, yeah, I hope you guys just pick fit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'll help you with letters of recommendation, building rapport with your professors, feeling supported. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For sure. Well, it's one past the hour, so I'm going to move us towards wrapping up. We didn't get to everything, but we will be back next week. Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern. We're always here. You can go create an account at Mapped app. Uh, so that's just go to mapped.com and make PPD. Uh, d.com create a free mapped app account you'll get a free map pro trial so you'll be able to chat with us during your trial so you can ask us questions there and uh don't forget to save the date for MappedCon october 6th through 8th 2023 in baltimore we're already gearing up for it <laughs> see you next week bye this is dr gray again closing out i hope you learned something from our session today If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.